Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson, the last mountain stage of the year for 2020, the Vuelta Espana Stage 17 recap brought to you by Lacole, our partner throughout the Giro, now throughout the Vuelta. I know you've all been enjoying the kit, those of you that have gone out and gotten it. And if you don't know anything about Lacole, you should buy now because you've been listening to all these podcasts, but they produce performance road cycling apparel, focusing on performance only. Once again today, I was checking in the peloton, the bar in McLaren guys, who all are obviously supplied and wear Lacole kit, how aero it looked. I was looking for wind flaps, wind movement in their rain vests, rain jerseys, etc. Zero movement, completely streamlined, no aerodynamic drag at all. Probably, yeah, quicker than a lot of other teams' straight jerseys. And then I'm looking at the Movistar ones and I'm thinking, wow, you guys got to be doing at least 100 watts extra to even keep up with a draft compared to the Lacole rain jacket. So that says all, you know, even that visually, I don't even need the wind tunnel uh, testing that I know they do have to back it up. But if you want to check it out, it's at www.lacole.cc. The link is in the show notes and the description. This stage 17, the pivotal one, supposedly, in theory, from Sequeiros to Alto de la Covatia, 178.2 kilometer long stage. A reminder of the GC positions going into it. Carapaz, 45 seconds behind Roglic and 53 seconds behind Roglic was Hugh Carthy. Dan Martin, another 50 seconds back. A minute 48 behind Roglic in fourth. So all to play for for Roglic. And this stage, if you don't know on this climb, this is where Chris Froome uh, transformed, I think, in 2011 and showed himself to be a world-class climber, 2011 Welter. It's, yeah, 178 Ks. You've got an easy Cat 1, 14 Ks at 5.3%, rolly terrain, then a Cat 2. I think the uh, Garganta climb, again, not selective, 11 Ks, 5%. Then they had an 800-meter cobbled climb with 18 Ks to go, which was kind of hard, actually, called the Candelario, or I think it's called. You know, a small village there, but then, um, yeah, probably not long enough for there to be any selection except for maybe the breakaway. And then the Covatia climb, which is flat for the first uh, 4Ks or flattish, 3 to 4%. And then it ramps up with, um, yeah, very irregular actually. The probably averages 8% for the last 6Ks, but the last K is 4%. And the third to last K is 5.6%. So with that last K being 4%, a draft would still be really important. And uh, yeah, breakaway went up the road, Benji, as it does every day in this welter. And the breaks have been, I don't know if anyone's got the stats. I'm not sure if you have, Benji. How successful have these breaks been in the welter? I don't have the stats either, but I'd say not overly successful. We've seen at the earlier stages of this ground tour that we saw Jumbo controlling stages quite a lot but we also had the opportunity of on Formigal for example is a Geary taking the stage win so 
It's a bit of a combination of both. I dare to say that looking back at it, we had Wellens twice. We had Godou twice as well. We had Izagire one time. So I'd say we've got a total of five stage wins, which is quite a lot for breakaways in an 18-day Grand Tour. So yeah, perhaps I've got a... I was wrong saying the first time that there's not that many. I feel like we're on a on a good average here. I think I feel like the uh, the balance is good between the two, to be honest. Yeah, I think break Scott. It it all depends on the GC tactics and what the GC teams are trying to get out of the day. If there's only one strong GC team with the leader, and they have the leader and the incumbency in the leader's jersey, then they're going to be less inclined to keep a break in check. And I think we saw that with Jumbo Visma a lot this Vuelta. In fact. Godot's first stage win was kind of predicated on Jumbo Visma not closing a 90-second gap and uh, maybe a bit of foreshadowing for today's stage. But who was in the break, Benji, or maybe which which riders in that break had a genuine chance of winning? It was rainy, so I know Izaguirre was up there somewhere. Yes, indeed. The, the stage started and we saw I saw a post, post online by Willermann, which is a Sportza dude, uh, Renat from Sportza. He's got a Twitter channel. Uh, Twitter account and on that he posted the finish line of today with rain everywhere so I was thinking directly Izagiri is going to do good today I saw that he was in the breakaway so I believed in that opportunity Frilo was there for his team as well so two riders for team can definitely help them out I dare to say that Movistar had three people up there but not necessarily beneficial for either of them Oliveira, Erviti, Arcas not necessarily the best climbers in the world perhaps we can name Lastra of Kaja but mm, meh NTT with the bot and Mader. I've heard it was Mader. Uh, someone told me that, so I'm going to keep on saying Mader now, unless someone recorrects me and says it's Mader anyway. But um, we had the bot being pretty good last year in a Grand Tour. I don't remember which one. I think it was the Vuelta. And now he's doing decent, but not on that level anymore to me. And I've got the feeling that Gino, his teammate, Gino Mader, is... Ryan Beffer, and throughout his whole Vuelta, he's been growing and growing, and I think it's his first Grand Tour, pretty young guy, and as a consequence, I believe that he can be pretty good in the future, because today, he was one of the stronger riders in the breakaway, spoilers. Um, we also had Kofidis with Herrada and so forth, but mainly Guillaume Martin for the KOM points, but then again, is it still for the KOM points? He's clearly in the lead, so perhaps it was more for the stage than the KOM points in the end. Well, Grupama, Godou once again in the breakaway with Armirai. Armirai being a pretty good rider so far in this Grand Tour, in the sense that he's one of the only non-GC riders that has had the ability of almost every stage. I think he didn't do it for one stage. He got into the top 50 of every stage. So that's kind of crazy. We had Schultz and Schmidt for Mitchelton. Meh. Bora with Ackermann. So uh, yeah, that was special. And I guess the last two names I can name, perhaps Cavanial for the Koenig and for Senweb, Donovan, Storer and Sutilin. Storer and Donovan have already showed stuff on the climbs before in this Vuelta and have shown some talent. And today they seem to have been riding for Donovan of the three. Another team was up there with one rider and that's Jumbo Visma with Hofstede, Leonard Hofstede, a Dutch rider that is mainly known for being a flat domestique for them. But today he's going to come in in a certain way quite perfectly for Jumbo, and we'll go into it later on, but we'll talk about the stage itself first. Honestly, I didn't expect too much for the first part of the stage. This is one of those queen stages that, well, I don't even want to call it a queen stage. It's 
is the last final mountain stage of a Grand Tour, so obviously it matters a lot. But there's not too much real climbing, except for going up and down a tiny bit throughout the parkour with some rolling hills everywhere. Five kilometer climbs of 5%, then a five kilometer climb of 5%, 10 kilometer later. So it goes up and down all day, but it's not proper climbs. I think the only two proper climbs in this are the actual Covatia and perhaps the one in front of that, that will matter. You've obviously got that climb that you said earlier near the start of the stage, that fast cat climb that could be counted as a real climb, but they're not going to ride over that at a full proper speed. But what's, what I started noticing is this breakaway got a lead and Hofstede is in there, so Jumbo is not directly pacing them down. But the moment that breakaway was reaching up to two minutes, three minutes, they started controlling the pace. And that's something I wasn't sure that they were going to do. I thought having Hofstede in the breakaway might just be plainly useful to prevent having to ride in the peloton. But on the other end, there's no one dangerous in this breakaway. Do you feel like they should have let them go? Or do you feel like Jumbo was good in the decision to try and keep themselves on a good three minutes from this breakaway throughout the stage? I got no idea what they were doing. Made no sense to me. Um, I've sort of given up given up trying to read into why people are doing certain things. Movistar, Ineos, Jumbo, Visma. It's like, um, I'm not sure if you've seen uh, some cartoon where they chop a chicken's head off and the chicken just runs around aimlessly and wherever it lands is what they decide to do. And I feel like that is what some of the teams decide to do and whether to pace or not. Um, because Yumbo Visma should be happy to let the bonus seconds go to the breakaway. So I don't know why they were keeping it at three minutes. And then later on, the break was at 90 seconds and they deliberately let it go out to four minutes in the last 20Ks. So... Maybe Roglic said he felt good at the start and the plan was to keep the stage win possible and then he said, oh, I don't feel so good later. So they let it go. But yeah, I don't uh, I don't understand. Because it should be the reverse, right? It should be EF and Ineos pacing because they need every second on the Covetier, not just on the road but in the bonus seconds. But Ineos couldn't do anything today. They pulled yesterday. For absolutely no reason, didn't set up anything. Just ended up isolating Carapaz with a tired Amador. We mentioned that yesterday, and today the team was absolutely stuffed, including Amador. Not his fault, and um, they're not the strongest team to start with. And so on the day when it, it really should have been, that should have been trying to make the difference, Carapaz had to do it all on his own. But uh, yeah, I think. What I remember mostly from this stage, Benji, is is a gear, it was UAE pacing the brake quite a lot. And then it, I really started to focus up, I think, when Movistar started pacing a lot on the second-to-last climb. And I was like, ooh, Enric Maas has been in the press saying, well, we only care about the red jersey. Nothing else matters. We only care about the red jersey. <laughs> and um, it's like, okay, I'll believe that when I see it. Oh, no, I mean... I, Mars attacked on Angleru actually quite early, so I'm not. He's he has attacked when it's made sense, but I was like, there's, he's way too far back for red. Anyway, they they were pacing, and then they attacked with Soler, I think, before the end of that climb with like three to four k's to go, trying to bridge across ninety seconds to the break on his own, 
And uh, that was always going to be a pretty tall ask. And this is a big break too with decent climbers in it, Godou. Or... Did Godou follow him, Benji, or did he come out of the break? Was he already in the breakaway? Godou was already in the breakaway. So it's not like okay. the last time there where Godou was bridging up with Solaire to the breakaway. This time around, Godou was already in the breakaway and Solaire tried to bridge up. He had obviously Arviti still in the breakaway from earlier on. The other two, I don't know where they were. Arcals and Oliver, I didn't see them anymore at that point. So I guess they must have already been dropped on the earlier, well, climby parts, I'd say, throughout the stage, because I won't call them full climbs. I, I denied to do that. I rejected. But yeah, that's Solar Attack. While, yeah, let, let's let's plan it out here. You've got this climb. You've got Movistar pacing on it, trying to pull the gap down, because Jumbo wanted to keep it at three minutes for some reason. And Movistar pulls that gap down to a minute and a half, almost one minute, and they attack with Solaire, and then they stop in the peloton. So they spend the majority of their team pacing to have Solaire attack to the breakaway, of which he had to do a minute of trying to catch up with the breakaway alone, and then a half a minute to close down himself with Erviti as a helper. So he's going to come into that group, at the top of the Garganza climb with, well, tired legs, because you, you won't tell me that Solaire can close a gap of a minute and a half with limited help of Erviti and still be in the shape of beating people who have been, well, not resting, but climbing at a lesser rate than bridging a one minute 30 gap. So the likes of an Izagiri, a Godud, these guys are sitting in the breakaway prepared to launch on Kovatia and Solaire bridges up to them. But at that point, I also think that that group started splitting up into two pieces, and Solaire was caught in the second group. While that was the mistake, though. Yeah. Indeed. So they've they they they've dropped their VT back because it was actually quite a the last bit of the climb and draft was important, and they were a minute too late because by the time he bridged across, or maybe they didn't move up when they needed to, when they did bridge across, VT pacing, great effort from him by the way for Solaire. Solaire, they it is then. I uh, look. They get. They then go straight into this eight hundred meter of cobbled climb, very narrow, and you needed to be at the front. This breakaway was still like twenty riders. Solaire was at the back, and you could see him trying to fight his way through around riders dropping back. It was like a, I don't know what it was like. He's just he was out of position. It cost himself a lot of watts, and he missed the split because you know uh, Mader. It was Mader, wasn't it? Yeah, he. Um, the Swiss rider for NTT, he attacked on the cobble climb. I think Izagire went with him as well as... And then, no, not Godou. It was just Izagire and uh, Maiden. and he was looking very, very strong on the cobbles. And um, Soler missed that split. So that was all all she all she wrote for, for Movistar and Soler, I guess. They put in all that effort and he, just by not being in position, it cost him. And probably, as Benji mentioned, you know, if... You're going to do all that effort against guys that have been resting-ish in a break, and then you've got this 800-meter hard selection. He's not going to be fresh for it. Uh, but what was happening in the GC group, Benji? I think it was, at that point, Hessink pacing for Jumbo Visma, and they were letting the gap... They, they rode pretty firm into that 800-meter climb, but then, uh, obviously, position was very important. Nullify any attacks happening from Carapaz or Carthy, etc. They didn't happen... And then I think in the valley they just let the gap balloon out to like by three 
an extra three minutes, right? Yep, they did. And that breakaway obviously still had proper riders in there. But as you said, that split up happened on that cobble climb and half of them were behind. And, well, they had to start the Kovatia. And you got to remember that on the Kovatia, the weather was different than what we expected. Yesterday, it looked like it was going to be sunny on our forecast. <laughs> but we saw that it was raining in the morning and we saw towards the moment that the riders were going on to it that there was a serious headwind. But also the headwind was kind of shifting to crosswind. So it was kind of in between and it was really difficult for the riders because they were going to have a rough time to attack if they attack from that breakaway early on on the Kovatia. And early on, I would say with a solid perhaps 7, 8k to go, you are probably going to get caught by multiple people trying to catch you because... If you go for a solo effort, then that headwind and crosswind is a kind of in between of both. It's going to kill you. And I think one rider clearly tried that. We saw an attack in the breakaway multiple times by one rider while there still was that second group behind. From the second group, we saw Guillaume Martin and David Guru trying to jump towards the first group. And once they did that, the second group started crumbling apart. Solaire very early on dropping on the Covatia. So he was clearly done after that attempt to try and bridge up. And perhaps that cobble ascension helped a tiny bit with getting his tired legs even more tired. And yeah, Martin and Godou tried to bridge up. But during that bridging up, we saw Martin unable to follow the pace that Godou was holding. So at that point, we clearly knew that Godou was going to try and bridge up towards the people at the front. At the front, we saw attacks by Zagire multiple times. I think one, two, three attacks by Zagire. And at one point, he was gone. He was gone. Shino Mater tried to follow him, was able to follow him. And then they basically started surplusing for like 100 meters and Mark Donovan came back. So it was because Mater didn't seem like he wanted to take over from Zagire too much in the, in the hard win situations. And... Once Donovan came back, Izagiri tried it again, attacked on the left side of the road, and we saw that Donovan had to go once again off the back, and Mater looked like he was able to follow in a similar way, like Roglic tried to follow that Quintana attack on Peresurde, just sitting in his in his saddle, trying to have a, a higher gear, trying to follow the attack of Izagiri, and it just snapped suddenly. Suddenly it snapped, and Izagiri was gone for a bit. Izagiri had a gap on Mater, Mater had a gap on Donovan, but then one rider came from the back, didn't he? I just I knew the minute I saw Guru the way he was spinning it and how good he looked, how sort of yeah, he just looked under no pressure at all. Is a good climber, but not as not the level of David Guru. And um even though that gap was twenty seconds, the coverty is pretty steep in the sort of I think sixth and fourth last kilometre. There's a headwind making the overall effort slower for everybody, so a lot of a lot more time on the mountain. And um, I thought it was over. Once Gadu, I saw him just scream past, I think, Mark Donovan. I was like, he's gonna, he's not even going to wait with Izaguirre. And that's what happened. Got to Izaguirre, and I think before Izaguirre even knew he was there, he attacked on the other side of the road to him, full gas. And uh, that was with four and a half k's left on the climb. The peloton was three minutes behind, and it was um, that was it, all over. David Gadu cleaning up his second Grand Tour stage win in a matter of, yeah, less than a week after the first one. So really impressive from Godot. Kind of interesting, Benji, that 
Giro, no Pino. <laughs> DeMar cleans up the stage wins. FDJ come to the Vuelta. Wait, Pino started the Vuelta. Yeah, that's right. Pino started the Vuelta, but I don't think it was for GC. And then he's left and Godou's got his first two Grand Tour stage wins without too much pressure. But it is a lot different being one of the sort of top, let's say he's, let's say Godou's a top 25 climber in the world, including all the top GC guys on his day. It's, it is easier to win breakaway stages against riders who aren't at that talent level. Um, and it's a lot harder to move up and be a real like top five, top seven GC contender um, in a Grand Tour. As Leonard Kamner said on one of the first on, on the podcast, it's it's harder than you think being a top even a top ten GC guy. Um, but I can't wait to see what Godou does next year. I'm really really interested to see what FDJ do with their Tour de France selection next year. That's definitely one for the off season podcast projecting which teams take which riders to the tour and um yeah i can't wait to do that but yeah got her looking good what was the state who was was yama visma still like soft false pacing at the base of the coverteer bench i couldn't really tell because the camera was changing back and forth between Godo etc was it bennett or hessink no it wasn't it was a it was a dutchman actually he took over but i think it was after yama visma pacing softly was it a Dutch guy? I thought it was Vingegaard, right? Schelling. Oh, yeah, Schelling came around. And it was a real mystery because... He created um, this stage. Yeah, he did, but there, there's a bit of a story there. Edith Schelling came to the front of that group for Bora Hansgrohe. He was extremely strong today, like genuinely awesome rider. I love it. I absolutely love it. And who was he doing that for? Groschartner. But the thing is, Groschartner punctured, like... 12 kilometers earlier on that cobbled climb. <laughs> Someone had to puncture on it. I called it yesterday, but I am I feel bad for Groscharner, but I'm glad that it's Groscharner and, and not a top 5 GC rider at the moment, which is maybe perhaps a bit horrible to say about Groscharner because I like Groscharner, but still, it didn't influence the GC fight, which is good because otherwise that would have been a bit of a shitty way to lose a rider from top 5 on a cobble section. Groscharner was back in the group already though so he was back in the group Edith Schelling came to the front started mashing it mashing those pedals and he started breaking up that group actually doing it and I thought well if Schelling is gonna be the guy that breaks this group apart how many riders of Jumbo are gonna stay around during that and I think they only had George Bennett and Sepp Kuz left for Roglic when Schelling was done pacing but that was on the moment that they were reaching the steeper parts but also the more windy parts of this Kovatia and Schelling went off the front but Bennett was at that point already dying and went off the back soon as well so who did they still have at Jumbo? They had Gus and they had Roglic but also keep in mind from the breakaway Hofstede is still ahead. I think if I was Jumbo Visma and they did the exact same thing I'm describing uh, earlier on in this year's Vuelta, and maybe Ineos did it too, they definitely did it in the tour as well. If you're if you've got your team at the front and some domestique comes to the front of the race and just starts to ride really really fast on the last climb, you can just let their wheel go. You don't need to fault. Just let the wheel go. What's going to happen? He's going to ride off, get a 15 minute gap to you. 
what what's going to happen is then you're sort of baiting, I guess you would be baiting Carapaz or Carthy to attack, but probably still better to ride at the pace you wanted to ride anyway. They did it in early stages of the Vuelta, and I'm trying to remember who they did it against. I think they did it in the Giro, or someone did it in the Giro when Fabro was pacing really hard. I think Ineos maybe. Uh, Fabro for Bora was pacing really hard in maybe the Etna stage and uh, stage three, and other GC guys just let him go. And I think Yumba Visma might have done that today. But anyway, they followed Schelling, and they, everyone looked in great difficulty, even Carthy. Um, who I thought was going to actually move up on Carapaz today just because of the way the stage might have played out. Well, he actually looked under a lot of pressure, but I guess he kind of looks like that all the time. And then I'm not sure what happened after Schelling. Um, oh, no, then Vlasov attacked. So Vlasov attacked, and he's ended up costing himself a top 10 on GC because of this attack. Attacked quite early, I think like three and a half, four Ks to go on the climb maybe. It's hard to say because I think they were still go to. It, we didn't really get the kilometer markings on the road accurately because Godot hadn't won yet. And then Schelling followed Vlasov. Didn't make much sense to me. Still can't figure out why Schelling was pacing particularly. Inexperience, I think. But also um, yeah, to try was, something, I guess. Was it not Groschartner sending him up the road? Yeah, but the reaction to Vlasov, I think, is the inexperienced part that. He probably shouldn't have done it, but he was probably thinking, I'm doing a wonderful job for Groschart, I should keep going. And then he jumped to Vlasov's wheel. <laughs> I guess he was kind of protecting, like Vlasov and Groschart were close on GC. Um, I mean, before this stage, Groschart and Poles, uh, Valverde and... Oh, yeah, Groschart was kind of close to Poles on on GC, so maybe they're trying to move up to six or something. But I thought it was a bit strange because Grosshartner just bridged back after having that mechanical. But anyway, I can't remember what, what sort of happened at that point. I think there was a bit of stalling, and then Hugh Carthy had to attack. The inevitable Hugh Carthy attack, he swung to the furthest extremity of the right-hand side of the road, attacking, but it didn't look like there was much separation, and he got closed down pretty easily by Carapaz. And I knew that... Yumbo Visma were smart and they were asking Carapaz to close that down. Um, and maybe even Enric Maas was, was closing it down um, to to Carthy. Or was it Sepkus Benji? Because I don't think Sepkus was looking was looking too good. Yeah, Sepkus wasn't looking too good. And once Carthy made that move and I think Carapaz closed it down and tried to follow Carthy because I feel like Carapaz was responding a bit too much to the attacks of Carthy throughout this Kovati and perhaps should have had Roglic or Gus try and put more of a dent into them by forcing them to try and follow Garfi a bit. But then again, Karapaz was probably thinking, what if Garfi flies past me and becomes second in this Grand Tour? So perhaps he was trying to be safe on that aspect and try to respond to everything that happened. But Garfi made that move. Karapaz jumped to it. Gus was also still working for Roglic at that point, tried to close it down. And I think that they closed down the first attack of Garfi. But Coffee wasn't done. Coffee was not having it. And despite Coffee cut up us making that move, I think that Kaz was trying to close that down. And it looked like he was literally dying. It's the first time in the tour and Love Welt that I see Kaz actually suffer. But he looked like he was suffering. And he was unable to close the gap himself, maybe a bit too much. It took 
one, two, three, four, five elbow swings by Kuz for Roglic to come out of his wheel and try and close it down himself. And Kuz went off the front of that second part, which I think still had Moz in the wheel of Roglic as well. And then Roglic started bridging it himself with, I think, Moz in his wheel. I don't know where Dan Martin was around that point, so I'm not sure Martin was following that. He was gone, right? Okay, so... Roglic was trying to close that down. He got to the wheel of Carapaz and Kafi. And this was a moment where they had five riders there. I remember four of their names, Maz, Roglic, Carapaz and Kafi. I don't know what the fifth rider is, but it's. I think it was Vlasov still. Yeah, I think they caught up to Vlasov, Vlasov at that point. Yeah. yeah. So those five riders were up there. And there was a proper gap to the following riders. Well, one rider there, one rider there. And Kaz was not one of those first two riders behind. So I was like... Yeah, Roglic is isolated. Kaz is gone. How is he going to solve this? Because throughout the Vuelta and the Tour, the moments that Roglic is the most vulnerable are the ones where his team is, where he's isolated compared to having a team surrounding him. It's obvious that's with most people most likely, but I was unsure whether Roglic was going to be able to try and follow the next couple of attacks by the likes of Carapaz and Carfi. And it looked a bit weird first because Carapaz and Carfi were ahead of Roglic in that group. And they went into a certain corner. I think they went to the left side of the road at a certain point. And then Carfi tried to go on the right side of the road again. Pretty steep section. And it was Carapaz once again closing that section down. And I believed, like, why is Carapaz closing down all these attacks of Gafi? And they started slowing down again. Carapaz moved a bit back in the group. And I think that's when we, when we saw the most powerful attack of any GC rider in this climb. And that was Carapaz, right? El Jaguar del Turcan. Carapaz not going out down without a fight. 45 seconds. With three Ks to go, the bonus seconds are gone because Ineos couldn't pace the break back and the breakaway won the stage. So, yeah, he's going to have to do 45 seconds on the road against Primoz Roglic. But the minute we pan back to Roglic after this Carapaz attack, we could see he was in a lot of difficulty. If it wasn't concerning enough when Koos was viciously flicking him through uh, to close the gap to Carapaz initially, he... Um, yeah, he just was going backwards, it seemed like. And he lost, I think, like 23 to 25 seconds in the second to last kilometer on this climb. So that gap went out really quickly. His gap halved. And I think a lot of people were getting shades of the stage 20 ITT in the Tour de France. Oh, no, Roglic can't lose another Grand Tour like this in a, the last proper stage. But, um, yeah, I think the... The final climb, well, a few things happened. The final kilometer, as I said at the top of the show, was only 4%. So it's harder to gain as much time when everyone's going quicker. It's not as steep as that second to last kilometer. I think that made a big difference. I also think Carapaz just went maximum for like two minutes and then slowed down again. We saw exactly the same on Angleroo. He gained 15, 16 seconds on Roglic and then Roglic paired it back and brought it back to him. And thirdly, Movistar started pacing for Roglic <laughs> with Mars and Soler and, and Hofstede. Hofstede dropped back, I think, a bit late still, though, in my opinion. But they dropped back Hofstede to pace Roglic for a little bit. But I'm not sure that was a great idea because he wasn't going anywhere very fast either. 
Um, I think if the climb was a little bit longer or harder, that might have put Roglic in even more difficulty. But then Movistar paced Roglic for the last whole of the last kilometre. Apparently that was because Mars wanted to gain time on Dan Martin to move up to fourth on GC. But uh, that was mathematically just not going to happen. And because he was like 50 seconds behind him, a minute behind him, it's a lot of time to make up on Dan Martin. Um, but yeah, they paced Roglic where the draft was pretty important. Roglic got to sit in. Carapaz is fighting this headwind or cross headman, whatever it is. And um, yeah, Carapaz finishes the stage ahead of Roglic. Let me do, see my math is correct. 15 seconds ahead of Carthy, who was in no man's land between Roglic and Carapaz. And Carapaz was 21 seconds ahead of Roglic on the road, almost halving that gap from 45 seconds to 24 seconds on GC. Obviously, no bonus seconds. They are sort of six bonus seconds or whatever it would have been, would have been pretty helpful if they were on the road. Roglic picked up six bonus seconds yesterday. And I don't think Carapaz could attack any earlier, really, because. He didn't have the team to really set anything up, and he did his best. And I also don't think Movistar pacing Roglic made an, an extra 24 seconds of difference either, maybe five seconds or six seconds. But I still think Roglic is winning GC without Hofstetter or Movistar. But what do you think of that last five minutes, Benji? Did you, at any point, did you think Roglic is losing this? I, I wanted it to be close for the, for the intense purposes of having more entertainment till the line. But in the last kilometer, it became really clear that that was not going to happen with Movistar also helping out Roglic. I would dare to say that it was worth it to try and pace for for Maz there, because, well, you say it was 50 seconds, I think it was 1 minute 50 seconds actually, before today's stage, and he clawed back a total of a minute on Martin. So imagine if he actually fully collapsed, which probably already kind of happened to lose a minute on Kovatia versus Maz after a Grand Tour where he didn't do that too much, losing this much time. So I dare to say that it was perhaps worth it for Mas to, to even try and do that, because why not? They don't care whether Carapaz wins a Grand Tour or Roglic wins a Grand Tour. They want to make sure that Mas has the best possibility of perhaps overtaking Dan Martin. If that's mathematically impossible, well, it's time to disprove mathematics then, to try and even do it, because it's the last climbing stage of the season. Go for it. Don't just say there and, oh, we're not going to pace because it's a minute 50 to close it. I, I, I don't believe in that. That's just my my opinion on it, you know? And I think that it was a good move to do that. And they shouldn't, shouldn't look at Roglic versus Karapaz. They should look at their own race. Perhaps from an entertainment standpoint on our end, it would have been a closer call if they didn't pace for Roglic. But these riders aren't riding for entertainment. Well, they are, but they're not riding... With that as their main goal, their main goal is trying to win with their team. And as a consequence, I believe that Movistar did well in that aspect of it. Their Solaire plan, plan totally failed. So perhaps they've got a strategy that didn't work today, a strategy that somewhat worked today with on the final line, Maz just being decent. That's not really a strategy, but he was just good. And all in all, I'd say that perhaps we can't really call that attack by... Movistar with Solaire, a horrible strategy on this one because I think people are going to call it a typical Movistar 2019 strategy or something. But what else do they need to do? It's the final mountain stage of a Grand Tour that they will try and do their best in to achieve whatever is 
even impossible to try and make it remotely possible. And they tried and they failed on that aspect with Solaire, but they did come closer with Moss and they did secure that top five position in GC with Moss. So I don't think they'll be complaining at the end of today. Um, they've got the plays they they wanted. It's not like it's the difference between fourth and a podium. That would have hurt a bit more. But all in all, I believe that we saw on the stage Carapaz gaining back time on Roglic in that final kilometer. We saw Garfi again at a proper level, and we're going to see more of Garfi in the future. I, Well, we all know it after this Vuelta, and this is the Vuelta that the Grand Tour that he, he kind of broke through, because we've seen for years that Garfi has been good at climbing, has been good at the start of this year, I think. I don't know which race. I remember something along the lines of an Algarve-like stage race, but it wasn't this year, maybe perhaps last year in Catalonia or Bay Vasco. I don't remember when it was. At some point in the last two years, he had one stage race where I was like, he can actually climb with the top climbers. And as a consequence, I thought that he could do it in a Grand Tour, but then he didn't last year. And this year, I, well, didn't expect him to be there. I have to be honest. I didn't expect him to be on the podium of this Grand Tour at this very moment. And I don't think anyone did really, but I do want to kind of close it down my GC talk here with just reminding everybody the achievements of the what looks like to be the winner of this belt. I think it's pretty sure now, except for a crash tomorrow, but we don't hope that for Roglic. We hope he finishes this Vuelta on top right now. And since June 2020, what has he done? He's won the road race of Slovenia. He won eight stage wins, two at the Tour de l'Ain, one at the Dauphiné. He also won one at the Tour, and now four at La Vuelta. He had nine podiums on other stages. He won a monument, Liège-Boston-Liège. He came second in the Tour de France, and now he wins La Vuelta. Holy crap. I think a month ago, if someone asked me who is the best rider of this season, I would have hands down would have said Wout van Aert. Second in both World Championships, doing amazing in the Tour with two stage wins as well as a follow-up on that. He was winning Milano San Remo, second in RVV. But Strata. if I compare these two, they are they are not comparable from the aspect of their topography of the races that they win. Even though Wout van Aert has shown to be a, a great climber, and I think a better climber than Roglic is a cobbler, <laughs> but that's a horrible comparison to do. But I think these are really close together for saying who of the two is the best rider in the world. And I don't think Pogacar, despite winning the Tour de France, is on their level over the whole season of 2020. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I mean, that tour was amazing from Pogacar for sure, but just the, the consistent domination of stage races or um, from Roglic and one-day races from Wout van Aert. I mean, we'll get into the awards later, I think. But, yeah, just hats off to Roglic. Just the – whatever this peak was, I've lost count of what, what day it is, three, four months from August. I'm not sure, but just really incredible how long he's been able to keep this up, including, by the way, a crash in the Dauphiné, which I think did affect him still quite a lot for the Tour de France, particularly maybe in that first week. Um that crash we had to withdraw from the Dauphiné. So, yeah, hats off to Primoz Roglic, wins his second Vuelta, defends his title. We'll talk more about the overall Vuelta maybe in the uh, Vuelta recap podcast coming out, probably come out pretty shortly, actually. And I don't know, 
This last week has been disappointing for me. I'm going to be honest with you all. I think the design is leaves a lot to be desired. I think it is good to have. I like bonus seconds. Gives an incentive to the punchy riders. They can contest GC and do well on GC. Um, make sure that GC riders are going for stage wins too. I think that's all good. But I think... I think Carapaz was a better climber than Roglic in this year's Welter. He, um, and Carthy too, probably, uh, head-to-head. And they didn't really get any opportunities or genuine opportunities to gain that time back on a proper mountain stage or some consecutive mountain stages. It, it was very heavily geared to the short, punchy climbs. I think a bit too much in this Welter. And I think that is borne out by the number of stage wins that Roglic does have. And they are in different parkour for sure, but I think that we haven't seen, yeah, there was just a lot of punchy stages um, as well. I don't think there were enough pure flat stages. Maybe that's why the Welter is different, right? They want to have different to the Tour de France. Maybe I'm trying to describe what a Tour de France route is, but yeah, like not enough for the sprinters, I don't think. And um, maybe, yeah, I just... With the three stages, maybe we're missing the three stages and they would have been in normally. I don't know. But um, I think it would have been a lot more exciting today if the stage was had another big climb or something like that. But I'm not a master in route design. Benji's better than that, better at that than me. And La Flamme Rouge is an expert in that too. He's always talking about route design. I think he's already been talking about the, uh, the Vuelta route route design but yeah Benji and I, I think said uh do we say Benji that we just thought Roglic had this wrapped up after the ITT yes we did and I think that throughout the stage despite the attack of Karapaz lighting it up a bit I didn't feel too threatened with Roglic I didn't believe that Karapaz would make that much time back on the time where he attacked to the finish line this definitely with the last kilometer don't not being that steep and I think I want to pick in on two parts of what you just said Firstly, the aspect where you talked about the bonus seconds. Roglic won this Grand Tour with bonus seconds, and that's it. He obviously Carapaz was... had less time on the road. Yep. Yeah, Carapaz wrote this well in a shorter time. And if I've got it here, shout out to Mathieu Sirvan, which is a person that has a cycling block Le Gruppetto in France. Awesome guy. He calculated that Roglic has gained 32 bonus seconds over Carapaz, 84 bonus seconds in total. And as a consequence, Roglic is winning this Vuelta with 24 bonus seconds. So all in all, Roglic is technically winning this Grand Tour on bonus seconds. I don't believe that's a bad thing. I believe that it shows that Roglic has qualities that the other riders don't have. Roglic can finish off mountain stage with a bit of a, a punchy sprint versus the others. He can do so on relatively punchy finishes as well. And as a consequence, he can gain bonus seconds on others. And that is a quality. That is something that that rider can do. And I believe that someone that has a quality is allowed to use that to try and win a grand tour. And it is a strength that Roglic has. This doesn't make him a worse all-round rider because he didn't ride the parkour in the same amount of time as Carapaz. I believe that he deserves it either way because, well, on paper, he's just the more all-round rider compared to Carapaz. He can time trial better and he can finish stages better. He's perhaps on a similar level in climbing in this Vuelta. I wouldn't say that either of them was per se better than the other. I think they were really close together. Roglic a bit better in the earlier parts of this Vuelta 
and Karapas perhaps in the last spot, but that's when it comes into that aspect of the route because you said it, they've got, I think, stage 14 to 18. So that's five stages. I can't count the time trial really because that's GC-centered, but they've got five stages, 14 to 18. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Yeah, that's five stages. I wasn't sure there for a second. Uh, those five stages have one stage that is GC-centered, really. Let's be honest. The others would have need crosswinds or some crazy tactics or something special to try and light it up for any GC rider. And this today was the only stage in those last five days that had a climb, only the Kovatia, to try and act on. And that is too low for me. I believe in any Grand Tour, you, you need to have somewhat of a finale to a Grand Tour. You can't have all the mountain stage in the first week and a half and then expect the last week existing out of four relatively hilly slash flat stages and one mountain stage to be a intense final for the GC of a Grand Tour. I don't like that design because it it removes a bit of that tension about GC. We were able to call out five days ago who was the winner of this Grand Tour without doubting it at any point throughout. And in the Tour de France... With only had a 39-second gap. Yeah, with only a 39-second gap, the that's thing. the worst part. Everyone's saying it's so close, it's so close. We didn't We didn't think so. I don't think... I was like, 39 seconds is a huge margin with the parkour to come. That's the problem. Yeah, and like, the thing about the Covatia stage is also that the only reason that that climb today brought five minutes of action was because of that wind and because of the fact that, well, I, I dare to say that wind was the main reason for it. I don't believe that if the wind was there, that Roglic would have suffered that much throughout the stage and perhaps wouldn't even have dropped on the final climb. I dare to say the wind is the only reason that Karapaz and Karfi were able to hinder the abilities of Roglic on this climb. And... I believe that Kaz would have been much better if there was not that much wind because he was suffering on that windy section mainly. And therefore, I'm thinking towards the fact that what if there was no wind? This would have been such a boring stage. And yeah, five minutes of action on the last mountain stage of a Grand Tour leaves a lot to be desired for me. I love the five, five minutes of action. I can't deny that I enjoyed the moment that the action started happening with the attacks of Karapaz and Karfi. That's what I was waiting for. And I enjoyed when it happened, and that enjoy kind of stopped the moment that I realized this was not going to influence GC anyway. So, Rolich wins the Grand Tour. I love it for that. He was the best all round, and as a consequence, he deserved this victory fully. But the route design of this last stage, I don't like it. One final climb that does it, not enough for me. I'm looking more towards a Stelvio-like stage, and... I'm not saying you need to go to 3k meters in the air to try and get a stage like this. I'm I'm saying that it's much more fun if you've got a large climb before a smaller climb at the end of a stage. And the Giro does this perfectly at the end of roughly every Grand Tour in the last few years in the Giro has one stage in the last week that is a large mountain and then a smaller mountain after it. And as a consequence, you've got the opportunity of climbers to attack two stage for two climbs from the end instead of on the last climb. And here you can only do it on that final Kovatia climb, and you don't really have the ability of gaining back the likes of a minute. If you've got a stage like, well, I think it was, uh, the, I think it was the Vuelta of 2009 or 8, where they had a stage with, at the end of the stage, the Alto Pladebere, 
that is 6.2 kilometers at 6.2%. But before that, you've got a 6.2% climb of 17.8 kilometers, the Puerto de la Bonegua. And if you've got that combination, the Bonegua and then the Plata Berea after that, that is both in Spain. It's perhaps not as close to Madrid, so you'd have to do it perhaps the second last day or the third last day, not actually like the penultimate stage before Madrid. And I feel like a final like that would leave so much more opportunity. It wouldn't be that steep. You've got steeper sections on these climbs, perhaps more on the starting ascension of the Bonegua, the second last climb of that route would happen again. And I believe if you've got that in the final week, I'd love that stage so much. I think that we'd see Jumbo being attacked on the Bonegua. And as a consequence, you'd have perhaps Carapaz and Carfi already coming to the top of the Bonegua with a bit of a gap on Rolich. He'd have to try and fix it up in the descent then. And on the last section, the Plata Barre, you'd have an ultimate battle mano a mano for a full climb of 6.2 kilometers. And perhaps I'm misreading this potential profile and perhaps Jumbo would control the whole stage but I don't believe that I believe if you've got a larger climb before a smaller climb you are destined to have a better stage and yeah I, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed by the route design of this this Covaitia stage and I think that's the reason that we were able to call it that early five days ago otherwise I would never have called it five days ago that Roglic had it if we had a climbing stage with just more in it I do want to say I mean, we, we do sound like we're being hypercritical here. I mean, probably are, but it's just how <laughs> we feel about it. But we, we do, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. I want to give a big hats off from us to ASO and RCS. But yeah, ASO for both the Tour and the Vuelta. They put on RCS to the Giro. Being able to do all three Grand Tours in full with limited positive COVID tests. I mean, I never for, for a second thought that we just go all three Grand Tours with no positive COVID tests. That's just a risk that I thought was going to happen and it was kept pretty much under control. Vuelta, we barely had any, I don't think, and no safety issues. I don't remember any in this Vuelta really like bad crashes. Um, I don't remember any glaring safety mistakes except a couple of... I mean, if you're just complaining about a a corner that's a little bit late on an uphill uphill drag that <laughs> wasn't really dangerous. If that's all we're complaining about, then it's as safe as safe as Grand Tour as you're going to get. And this Vuelta was outstanding in that respect, so really hats off to the ASO for that. But listen, that being said, I am sick to fucking death of these medium mountain stages with over and over and over and over again. All I want is completely polarized stages. So I want a ridiculous amount of ITT, 100K flat ITT. I also want pancake flat stages where crosswinds could happen. I also want obscene high mountain stages like Stelvio 1, multiple of them. So you just have this conglomeration of completely different stages and you just see what happens. See what sort of rider can win that Grand Tour. I find that sort of thing uh, really interesting because with the medium mountain stages, it's just breakaway goes, they sprint at the end. Whereas in all those other stages, you can have lots of different things happening. Um, but that's enough for the Vuelta. We'll probably recap it properly in the Vuelta recap podcast if we haven't cut across it too much already. Just mentioning again, I, I still haven't been able to catch stage one of the 
uh, Thera Tizit Challenge by La Vuelta. I don't think the highlights exist. Haven't seen them. But stage two, there was some footage of the riders rolling out the start ramp for this ITT 9.3Ks, and it was won by Lisa Brenauer. There's still no, sorry, there's no other footage really available. I mean, uh, there might be some highlights somewhere. Tomorrow there might be better footage for stage, the last stage three. I'm not sure. Bit of a shame. Big shame, actually. But, yeah, Lisa Brenauer won. I thought she was going to win. I had her in my Velo Games team, German national <laughs> champion on the road. And, uh, yeah, she won by second to Elisa Longo-Borghini, the Italian you're familiar with. Two Dutch women, third and fourth, Ellen van Dijk. We knew she'd be up there, former world champion in the ITT. Two Trek second freighter riders, two in second and third. Van Vleuten, fourth, eight seconds behind Brenauer. Leah Kirchman, fifth, 14 seconds back. And Sarah Roy, 18 seconds back. Pretty nice result from Sarah Roy, coming sixth, actually, the sprinter. Mika Kroger came seventh. She had pretty favorable weather conditions, I believe. There was a bit of rain, I think, at some point. Alice Barnes, eighth. The Brit, 25 seconds back. Micah Bugard, ninth. And Hannah Ludwig, tenth. Lorena Veeves, actually, 11th, 28 seconds back. Not too bad from her. So because Brenau did well in the sprint yesterday, she, the, she came third, surprisingly. She now moves up into first on GC, 10 seconds ahead of Elisa Longo-Borghini, 13 seconds ahead of Ellen van Dijk, and 17 seconds ahead of Van Vleuten, 18 seconds ahead of Lorena Vives. So I don't know about the bonus second situation tomorrow. Tomorrow's stage is poised quite nicely in Madrid. I think it's like 100Ks. Yeah, 100Ks on the dot in Madrid. It's not pancake flat. Van Vleuten's going to have to attack from far. If she wants to win GC, she's going to have to win the stage, take the bonus second. So Van Vleuten's going to have to attack at some point. Trek have got second and third on GC, both of whom have really big engines, uh, Elisa Longo-Borghini and Van Dyke. So I expect them to be one-twoing Brenauer at some point in the last 20Ks. So and probably they got Cordon Rago, they got a pretty strong team, even though they've only got four riders. So... Trek have got those cards to play. And then Brenauer, does she go on the offensive early to because she knows that's going to happen? Does she just try to follow moves and try and get as many bonus seconds as possible? And then Lorena Vibes, I'm not sure if mathematically there'll be enough bonus, but, yeah, she probably still be my favourite for the stage tomorrow, to be honest. But, yeah, I'm not sure her or... I kind of like Elisa Longo-Borghini for tomorrow's stage and the GC overall. I just got a feeling about it. But we will see. Um, hopefully we can catch it live. If not, then I think GCN Race Pass should have highlights at some stage. Um, but, yeah, that's that race will be on next year. I think uh, it'd be good to – yeah, just good to have more live coverage. You can probably hear the disappointment in my voice about that. But sorry, Benji, I before – I think I moved on to that before I let you have a last word on the Vuelta. Um, if there's anything else you had to say. The only thing, the last thing that I that I should do is congratulate you because you've made it, man. You've made it in the sense that you created a nickname on the podcast, El Jaguar del Tulcan. El Jaguar de Tulcan, sorry. <laughs> and I was watching Sports today and this the main commentator, Renat, he was at a certain point when Carapaz was attacking, shouting in Dutch, the Jaguar, the Jaguar, the, oh, uh, Von Tulkan. <laughs> and in Dutch, that, in English, that means, yeah, El, El Jaguar de Tulkan. 
our, our nickname. And you basically made a nickname. And within a week time, it made itself on live television on Sportza, the main sports channel in Belgium, in the final kilometers of the last mountain stage of La Vuelta. I believe that deserves some claps, to be honest. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I, I, don't know how, I don't know whether he made that up on his own or how that's worked <laughs> his way to him. Um, I have I have realized that a lot of the like a lot of the interns or maybe like the junior producers at um definitely at Rye because at Rye they literally take <laughs> taken my videos and put them on Rye and kept the audio in and my face in the corner whilst they talk about <laughs> the race <laughs> because I think one of the producers there watches my stuff and he's like Sibiu Tour well this guy's done some stuff on Sibiu Tour and I was talking all sorts of nonsense but anyway I know same they Ineos, sort of watch my stuff by the way same with Ineos yeah. this week explain yeah and Ineos I guess maybe that was just the first thing they saw when they looked up on Luke 2015 but um, yeah I reckon someone at sports and maybe the junior guys or whatever fed him through that nickname told him on his cheat sheet someone marked it up on his cheat sheet Hey, Carapaz is a new nickname. It's not Richie anymore <laughs> or El Locomotora. It's, uh, it's El Agua de Tulcan. So I think that's here to stay. A few of the Ecuadorians initially cor- corrected us and we, and then we convinced them, I think, that this is a better nickname. And certainly he is a savage Carapaz. He's a real just uh, attacking, aggressive rider, leaves it all out on the road, and, and I love it. And that's why he's one of my favourite riders, Richard Carapaz, both at Movistar and now at Ineos. And I know we've probably gone back now to the Vuelta, but I think it was a big shame that he he had such a weak team at this Vuelta. I think it cost him quite a lot. But we'll talk about more about that in the the wrap up. Thank you to Lacole for supporting us for this Vuelta, making this podcast possible. We still got stage eighteen tomorrow. The uh, formality sprint in Madrid. I almost forgot about that. I thought I was going to get extra sleep, but uh, yeah, we'll be covering that. Sam Bennett's my pick for that. Who's your pick, Benji? Hmm, I think that I said Aberasturi at the start of this Grand Tour and gotta be honest, it doesn't look like he's gonna win a stage here. I hope that he does, but I don't see it happening. So I'm going to, hmm, it's a bit of a different special final Madrid and I believe that it's most likely gonna be Bennett, but I gotta say a different name, come on. But I don't know who. I think the Belgian guy, Gerben Thijssen, Oblade Suda already stopped in this Vuelta, so he's out, so I can't name him anymore. And Philipsen already won a stage. Ackermann will try and get revenge on this final stage. I think it's going to work. Ackermann's going to resurrect himself and is going to take the final stage of the Vuelta, I believe. Okay, that's your pick. Thanks to Lacole for supporting this podcast. Check him out, www.lacole.cc. We'll see you tomorrow. Ciao.